We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. Thousands of Americans, frustrated by excessive pounds they can't seem to lose, are turning to prescription medications originally developed to control type 2 diabetes, like Ozempic and Wagovi. Is this a good idea? Dr. Selvi Rajagopal is on the clinical faculty of Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Division of General Internal Medicine. In her clinical practice at the Johns Hopkins Healthful Eating, Activity, and Weight Program, she works with individuals to achieve their health goals through sustainable weight loss and weight maintenance. Dr. Rajagopal will speak at the Johns Hopkins A Woman's Journey seminar a week from Saturday about the risks and benefits of the new weight loss drugs. She joins us by Zoom for a preview. Welcome to On the Record. Hi there. How are you? So tell us about these drugs. How do they work? These drugs, uh, there's two, I think, classes of medications now that people are probably familiar with. Um, I'll go over the first one, which is the one that has been around longer. And um, I think many people have heard of um, brand names like Ozempic, um, and Victoza, and then Wigovi uh, more recently. So um, these drugs, as you mentioned, were originally created for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And the reason for this is that there are a couple of mechanisms in the body um, uh, that they are working off of. So one of the first mechanisms is that when we, um, when we eat a meal, these medications work on uh, receptors that are found in different organs in our body, but particularly in our gut, in our GI tract. And when uh, when we eat a meal, uh, these medications are mimicking uh, the hormone in our body that acts on those receptors, um, which signals to our pancreas to make insulin. And uh, insulin is a hormone that I, I like to call it a storage hormone it gets produced in response to any uh, breakdown of food that turns into sugar and then gets absorbed into the bloodstream. And insulin's job is to store that sugar uh, into our cells so that it can perform work, give us energy, et cetera. Um, but there are other downstream effects of insulin. And so uh, for, for people when they have type 2 diabetes, their bodies... Uh, hormone um, that is supposed to be acting, you know, during mealtime may not actually be acting able to act as well on cell receptors. And so they may not actually be making insulin the way that they should be. Hence, they have elevated blood glucose levels. Um, so that's, that's one mechanism and one benefit. Um, but it also helps people who are at risk for diabetes, because by the same mechanism, you know, you're controlling blood sugar levels, you're helping the body make insulin when it should. Insulin also acts um, in the brain actually to suppress appetite uh, during uh, during that time when it's produced um, during a meal. So people tend to feel full that they don't have to keep eating in order to um, to feel full. And um, and so this signaling happens from the brain. There's a second mechanism that's also powerful. And when we're eating uh, food, uh, food stays in the stomach longer before it empties into our small intestine. And so um, this is a form of uh, almost delayed gastric emptying. People may have heard that that terminology thrown around, um, but basically it just keeps you full longer between meals. So people find that they're just staying satiated longer. So those are two primary mechanisms um, by which I think people find some of the effects uh, for weight loss. 
Um, there are other effects that have more to do with the diabetes pathway as well. For the people taking these drugs for weight loss, what are the most common side effects? Yeah, so uh, I think whether you're taking it for weight loss or for diabetes, the side effects are you know still uh, the same. Um, there may be some differences in how much people experience side effects. Um, but, uh, but yeah, because it's working, you know, in the GI tract, we do uh, tend to find that GI side effects or gastrointestinal side effects, I should say, are the most common. Um, and I would say that um, most people do experience uh, one type of GI side effect, at least when they're first starting the medication. This may include nausea, uh, constipation, diarrhea. In some people, it may be um, a little bit more severe, uh, like vomiting or reflux. I would say those are a little bit more rare. Um, other, um, I guess, uh, side effects that may be uh, relatively more commonly reported, fatigue, sometimes headache. Um, but these side effects usually have to do with first starting the medication, uh, the body getting used to it. And then as you're on the medication, um, you know, we monitor and um, usually side effects get better, go away. People learn how to eat, you know, with the drug on board. Um, and then uh, and then they, they titrate the dose accordingly. And is should we think of these drugs as something people will use for a long time? I mean, I assume for diabetes, they yeah. are used for a long time. But for weight management, yeah, are we talking months, years, a lifetime? Yeah. It's a very good question. Uh, I think that we have to think about a couple of things, right, when we're looking at weight loss. Um, so the way that we use it and we think about it is that really people experiencing, you know, sort of quote unquote, excessive weight gain over time, it's not something that happens like an on and off switch. Um, there are multiple mechanisms in the body that are at play, uh, determining how people, um, uh, how people respond to their food environment and how people feel satiated. And we used to perhaps have a more simplistic view of this, but now I think we really understand with decades of research that there are um, different signaling pathways between our brain, uh, our fat cells, and our GI tract that help to determine um, how much we we seek food and how much we think about food and how much we eat in order to feel satiated. And, um, and that signaling system uh, can really go awry in many people who experience years of continued weight gain. Um, and this may have to do with things that are happening within uh, the fat tissue. Um, and so there are real, you know, sort of pathologic changes that are happening that are actually making it very difficult for people to, 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 to make, you know, healthier food choices, um, whether it's portion control or specific foods. Um, and so we really view these medications as a way of treating that dysfunction. And so we use them as a chronic, uh, as a chronic weight management tool the same way that we use them for type two diabetes or, you know, use different medications for high blood pressure. Um, and so they are, um, they have been studied uh, to be safe uh, for long-term use. And um, we, we do tell patients that they, um, they are long-term medications. Um, and we do know that when, you know, people stop these medications, um, particularly if they're just using them for a short-term weight loss benefit, they often um, do regain weight. 
That's Dr. Selvi Rajagopal of the clinical faculty of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Division of Internal Medicine. On the record on WYPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about the risks and benefits of a new generation of weight loss drugs. Um, you're a clinician. You see patients trying to manage their weight. What do they tell you, and are they very interested in these new drugs? Yeah, yeah. So people are very interested. I think uh, for the first time, perhaps, you know, ever, people feel as though they really can get some uh, support in making the decisions they want to make to lead a healthier life. Um, And in that way, it's a very positive um, trend. Um, and that people are actually recognizing that, hey, I don't have to do this completely based off of willpower. Um, there are other mechanisms that can help. Um, I also see, though, that, um, you know, people may view it as, um, you know, sort of a one stop shop that, you know, that the medication by itself, you know, is going to fix all of their health issues and is going to make them lose weight, you know, by itself. And, I think that's where the education is important around um, the the role of the medication with weight loss and with chronic disease uh, management. How did you come to focus on obesity as your medical specialty? Uh, Well, um, I think it starts with just an early desire to prevent illness um, before medical school and just thinking about how we approach uh, medicine that, you know, for who knows how long we have really had more of an acute treatment based approach, sort of thinking on the flip side of a problem and saying, well, the problem is already there. The fire is there. How do we put it out? And we've learned, you know, better and fancier techniques and and ways of doing that. Um, We haven't done as good of a job of investing in people's health before it gets to that point of a fire. And that's always been my interest. And so, um, you know, I started off on the acute care side of things as um, a hospital physician, and really it was more just to feel very confident and comfortable seeing, you know, treating illness, but really with the intentionality of then going back and understanding prevention. And so I went back and did a master's in public health and preventive medicine training and and then, you know, discovered obesity medicine is, I think, um, a calling for me and, and that, you know, this is something that impacts so many body systems, it impacts human psychology. There's so many areas that we can really prevent uh, health complications if we address this. So that's how I landed here. What questions should people who are considering Ozempic, Wagovi, or Mm -hmm. other drugs in this category, what should they be asking? Yeah, I think uh, they should uh, ask, first of all, you know, what's going on with me from a health and a quality of life perspective? Are there things that bother me, right? Do I take too many medications for, you know, some sort of health condition? Is there something that, you know, I want to improve about my health? Learn more about that by talking to their doctor, obtaining whatever necessary diagnostic tests they need, and then figure out, well, is there also a relationship between these health markers and and weight? And if there is a relationship, then they can set a weight goal for themselves based on those markers. Um, Because... Uh, I I always have this conversation, the very first visit with my patients is, you know, what's the point of weight loss? So before deciding, it would be, why do I want to lose weight? And how much weight do I want to lose? And if, you know, you look at, you know, that, and, and you also look at what you have done so far, you know, with your lifestyle, and you feel that there are 
some areas where it's been really difficult to change. For example, like I don't get full quickly. It's very difficult for me, despite trying to eat healthy and make good choices, or I'm always thinking about food. You know, these are some of the common things that people will report. And in those situations, if they do have, um, you know, at least I would say 10% or more weight loss that they want to, that they want to achieve in order to improve their health. And I think these medications are, um, can be a wonderful tool. Just in the past week, I've read that drug makers are ramping up production of semiglutides because it's mm-hmm. being prescribed for so many people that supplies yeah. are running out. And I mean, the Wall Street yeah. Journal reported estimates of how much fuel airlines might save if the <laughs> average traveler was 10% less heavy. Do you think we are on the verge of a life-changing moment for overweight people? Yeah, I think so. I think we are entering a new um, era of how we view and treat weight gain. Um, and um, and I think it, it is uh, largely because of, yeah, like I said, decades of research and understanding it, but then also understanding how these medications are positively impacting people's ability to do what they want to do, which is to have a healthy lifestyle. Um, so yeah, I do think so. Thanks so much for telling us about it. Thank you for having me on. Dr. Salvi Rajagopal is on the clinical faculty of Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. In her clinical practice at the Johns Hopkins Healthful Eating, Activity, and Weight Program, she works with patients looking to reach health goals through sustainable weight loss and weight maintenance. She'll be discussing weight control at the Johns Hopkins A Woman's Journey event a week from Saturday. We have information at the On the Record page at wypr.org. Short break on the record when we're back. How social connections may help aging patients avoid dementia. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mahela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. The pandemic changed the way many of us spend our time, and some of us are still sorting out what feels normal and what's healthy. Dr. Thomas Kudjo, an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins who focuses on geriatrics and gerontology, has looked closely at the relationship between social connections and dementia. He'll be discussing it a week from Saturday at the Johns Hopkins A Woman's Journey seminar, and he's joining us now with a preview. Welcome to On the Record, Dr. Kudjo. Hello, how are you all? I want to get into how you did the study, but would you start by giving us the headline? What did you find about the link between social connections and dementia? Yeah, so social connections are really important for our overall health and well-being. Uh, In recent work, we leveraged data from the National Health Aging Trend Study, which is a nationally representative cohort study. Uh, We found that about... um, uh, people who were in the study had 28% higher risk of incident dementia over nine years. 
So this was based on looking at a lot of data from Medicare patients over years? Over nine years, uh, we found that uh, these individuals who uh, were socially isolated, and we characterized that uh, by individuals who lived alone. They didn't have indi individuals who they talked to about important matters. They didn't participate in community activities. And so they really had uh, no uh, strong connections to people. And so those individuals who lacked uh, connection, who were isolated, uh, had increased incidence of dementia in this study. So you, you can actually define who is isolated and who is not? Yes, we uh, we use uh, measures uh, and uh, essentially uh, we think about isolation as being objectively having few social relationships, uh, fewer social roles, fewer group memberships, uh, and infrequent social interactions. Can someone be isolated without being lonely? They can be, um, and so it's. In, I appreciate you bringing it up because I think differentiating between these two are very important. Uh, social isolation is this objective state, uh, whereas loneliness is subjective. Uh, it's uh, subjectively a distressing experience uh, that results in uh, this perception of isolation, uh, where essentially there's a mismatch between people's actual relationships and their desire relationship. So this discrepancy or unmet need uh, is an experience that is uh, very distressing for individuals uh, and also burdensome for health, their health. But the reverse is possible that someone may think they're fine. They're not, they don't feel lonely, but they actually are isolated. This is true. So, um, so people, uh, the common uh, phrase about this is that you can be lonely in a crowd. So essentially saying that uh, you may have all the connections uh, uh, in the world. You may have a loving uh, family or people who love you uh, and want to support you, but you not uh, you you don't feel necessarily uh, um, fulfilled through those connections. So uh, you can not be isolated, but lonely. That's Dr. Thomas Kudjo, an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, whose work focuses on geriatrics and gerontology. On the record on WYPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about the relationship between social activity, social connections, and dementia. Another part of your study looked at what role technology can play in this picture. Explain that. Yes, yeah, so um, because isolation uh, is... Uh, as I stated, is really important for our health of being a key public health concern that impacts many. Uh, many uh, are thinking about ways uh, in which uh, we can leverage uh, interventions, uh, solutions, uh, and one of which uh, uh, is uh, leveraging technology to increase um, people's social connections. And so in the specific work that you're alluding to, uh, we looked at um, older adults uh, who are 65 and older living in the community uh, and identified that those who had uh, who who used and had access to computers, cell phones, email, or text, these individuals uh, had um, a lower uh, risk of social isolation than individuals who didn't have access to or use technology. Interesting, because we often hear concerns that young people are paying so much attention to their devices, they're ignoring their friends in the real world. Yes, I, I think I think this is important to dis make this distinction that it's uh, there's nuances that I, uh, that exist between older adults uh, and uh, younger people, uh, and generally uh, speaking, uh, 
we we talk about t- technology use for older adults as a something that's going to augment or support uh, their connections, whereas I think uh, in younger uh, groups, uh, use of technology may be different. Uh, I think in some of these examples, you uh, where you see uh, people with their face in their phones uh, and on social media and such. Uh, these are examples, I think, where uh, these technologies potentially are uh, interfering with people's ability to connect in person. And so I think uh, when we think about uh, these two populations, it's important to distinguish uh, what the use of technology is um, and how it's being leveraged and how it is in, in, uh, potentially impacting how uh, humans connect with one another. I want to ask you about racial disparities. I have read that African-Americans are about twice as likely as whites to develop dementia and Hispanic-Americans about one and a half times as likely. What did your research show about race and ethnicity? Yeah, so uh, we specifically uh, have looked at um, the risk or impact of uh, isolation uh, overall and uh, which groups are at higher have higher odds of isolation or not and we found in uh, some of my early work that uh, there are differences uh, potentially uh, amongst older adults and whether or not they're isolated uh, or not however um, in our longitudinal work where we examined over time uh, social isolation is impact on dementia, we see that there's no uh, distinct difference between racial groups uh, in terms of how social isolation uh, influences uh, the incidence of dementia or the onset of dementia over the nine years of that study. Does lack of social connection cause dementia or is it a result? I think uh, you're asking me a question that I think more work needs to be done in terms of disentangling uh, the relationship between social isolation and dementia. We have epidemiologic studies, uh, studies over time that examine uh, the relationship between isolation and dementia or cognitive impairments. Uh, But I do think that more work needs to be done to examine how these two uh, impact one another. Uh, I do think there is a potential for bi-directional, a bi-directional relationship being uh, and saying more about that, that social isolation leading to dementia or dementia leading to social isolation. And so I do think uh, more work needs to be done to really uh, get at the causality uh, between one and another. I think you can imagine um, in actual examples uh, in our, our own lives where uh, we know um, the diagnosis of dementia uh, potentially uh, changes the way individuals behave or interact with their family. Uh, and uh, potentially that family that leads that person to not interact uh, with family or their loved ones or friends that they at once did. Uh, whereas uh, in other instances, it might uh, lead to uh, individuals having a, a outcry of uh, support uh, and from family or friends uh, and potentially more connections. So I, I think uh, the two can exist uh, and more work needs to be done to really clarify um, uh, the relationship between the two. Well, what advice do you have for families of an older person who they see keeping to herself? Yes, yeah, so I, I say older people, younger people across the uh, across the age spectrum, I, I think it's really important for us to be mindful that our connections are critical for our health. Uh, and so to meet people where they are, to to work uh, and support uh, people in ways that um, bring 
purpose to them, bring joy to them. And I think that's where we uh, should really begin is uh, re- recalling that uh, this is important to our health as uh, as it is uh, for, you know, maintaining a healthy diet and exercising and avoiding uh, things uh, that can impact our cardiovascular health. Uh, social connections are, are, are seriously important and have important implications uh, for our health across the life course. Dr. Kojo, thanks, thanks for talking to us about this. Well, thank you for making the time. Dr. Thomas Kajo is an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, where he studies the relationship between social connections and dementia. He'll be discussing his research a week from Saturday at the Johns Hopkins A Woman's Journey Seminar, November 18th from 8.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Baltimore Marriott Waterfront Hotel on Alisana Street. You can find out more about that event and Dr. Kajo's research at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow.